If you're a guest and you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we have been in a series called Church Is. Okay, 2020 for our church, we're focusing on what it means to be a family, being a church family. In order, in my opinion, in my thinking, in order for us to do that well, we need to first understand what the church is. What should the church be? So we've been talking about that. We've, we've talked about two things thus far, that two metaphors, if you will, that the Bible uses to describe the church. The first week we talked about the church as the bride of Christ. Last week we talked about the church as the body of Christ. This week we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about the church as living stones. Okay? The church as living stones. And we're going to talk about this, and as we do, we're going to be referencing a passage of Scripture found in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2, please do that. If you're following along in version, all of these verses will be in the version app. If you want to follow along up on the screen, they'll be up on the screen as well. We're not going to read the whole passage. Instead, I'm only going to read select verses from it. But you're welcome, if you would like, to go ahead and read the, not the entirety, but the first portion of 1 Peter chapter 2, as we talk about Peter's thoughts on the church as living stones. So we're going to talk about Peter's thoughts as the church as living stones. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read you verse 5 as we launch into this idea of the church as living stones. He says in the New Living Translation, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, he says, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We want to begin today as we look at three things. We're going to talk about three things, okay, that this particular passage in 1 Peter says about the church as living stones, okay? So the first thing we find in this particular passage when we talk about living stones is that we, that the church, when I say the church, I'm talking about the global collective of all the people who follow Jesus Christ. These people, we form a church that is a spiritual temple. So the first thing we find here is that Peter says living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So this temple that God is building is made of spiritual stones, not literal stones like we would have found in the Old Testament temple, but rather spiritual stones. Those of us who commit our lives to Jesus become living stones. And these living stones are laid on top of each other to form a spiritual temple. We are the individual stones that are used to build God's temple. Now, you also individually are a temple for the Holy Spirit, for God, but we come together as a collective of people, to form this spiritual temple. Unlike in the Old Testament where God resided in a tabernacle or a temple, right? The Spirit of God dwells in the lives of individual people who make up his church. This building that you're sitting in this morning is not God's house. Now, some of you would say, whoa, wait a second. What does that mean? That sounds almost like heresy, Brian. Well, what I mean is this, the brick and mortar, the carpet, the drywall, the paint, okay, all the wood, all the things that are put together, this is not necessarily God's house, his dwelling place. He dwells in us, and so when we are here, he dwells among us, right? But this is not necessarily, this building is 
not God's house. It is not God's temple. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of it. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't respect it. What it does mean, though, is that this building is not God's house. This auditorium that we're sitting in, some of you are like, wait a minute, what do you mean auditorium? That sounds so secular. Yeah, I know. It sounds secular on purpose. Because what it is, it's a room that a bunch of people gather in to do something together. But we call it an auditorium. Some of you are like, no, it's a sanctuary. Well, that's fine. If you want to call it a sanctuary, I'm not going to argue with you about that. But the point is this. The space in and of itself is not a sacred space. There's nothing like holy about it in and of itself. It's the use that we put into it. This this room is merely a gathering place for us to come together and give praise and worship to God. Because God doesn't live in this building. God lives in the hearts of his people. Living stones laid on top of one another on the foundation. We'll talk about the foundation here in a minute. But even if we go back to the Old Testament, okay, God actually speaks ahead into this idea in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. God says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that? Could you build me such a resting place, he says. My hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. Even in the Old Testament, God is looking forward. He's speaking forward into the idea that there really is nothing that we could build that would be better than what God has already created. Y'all follow me there? No matter how elaborate a structure we build, it will never be better. It will never even be as good. It won't even be a shadow of as, of as good as what God has already created. The crowning masterpiece of creation was what? Us. Humankind is the crowning. It's the, the masterpiece of all creation. And so even in the Old Testament, God is saying there's nothing that you can really build that's as good as what I have already created. So God doesn't dwell here. We are a spiritual temple. God wants to dwell in your heart, and he wants to dwell in mine. A spiritual temple designed and built for God's indwelling and his presence. So first, the church is a spiritual temple. The second thing that we find here is that the church is a holy priesthood. The church is a holy priesthood. And this is important because it's important that we understand that every person who acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? That Jesus Christ is the conduit of our salvation through God, right? When we acknowledge that, we become a member of a holy and royal priesthood. You say, well, what do you, I don't understand. Well, here's the unique thing about priests if you go back uh, and you look into the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament. One of the things about priests was that they had a more direct access to God than common people did, okay? So if you go back and, and you study how the priests would offer sacrifices one time a year, the high priest would be able to go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. So there was something unique about the idea of a priest and especially a high priest. And so once a year, you could go into God's presence. Well, here's the thing. When Jesus came... When Jesus dwelled here, when Jesus lived, when Jesus died, 
the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn, signifying that we no longer had to go through a priest to have access to God. So we, in essence, become a priesthood in and of ourselves because we now have direct access to God and we don't have to go through anybody else to get to him. Now, this is not in any way to bash on or slam people who believe that you must go through another person. We're not trying to to be negative toward that. We're simply saying that as we understand it, we no longer have to go through a priest to get to God. Because through the death of Jesus Christ, we now have direct access to God himself. Jesus makes that possible for us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the Bible says this, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved, where, where did, I, I've lost my notes, it's gone. Privilege, there it is, where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. You see, there's something to be said for the idea <clears throat> that we now have this privilege, this unimaginable privilege that we can go straight and directly to God himself. When Jesus is first sharing these words, when this idea is brand new, this is revolutionary. This is crazy because, especially to the Jewish people, this is not something they've ever been able to do before. And so this is radical to them. I, I can remember when I worked as a, um, a, a research analyst for a bank years ago. Um, Liberty Savings Bank was, was where I worked. And we were in the same building where the, the president's vice president, CEO, whatever, uh, all of the executives in the, in the building worked. And the CEO of our company's name was Jim Powell. And uh, Jim's office was a pretty good-sized office, kind of secluded from everything else. And Jim had a son named Ryan. And Ryan Powell, um, after he graduated from college, came to work for the bank. Okay? Now, those of you who've worked in a a smaller corporate environment like that that's run by a family. Maybe you'll be able to relate to what I'm about to say here. But none of us little peons that worked at the bank could just walk into Jim's office. You all know what I'm saying? So Jim had an executive assistant. And if you wanted to talk to Jim, you know what you had to do? You had to schedule a time to talk to Jim. You had to do it through his executive assistant. Right? You couldn't just walk in the office. That was true for everybody except one person right? You know who the one person was that didn't have to call the executive assistant before he went in that office? Ryan. Ryan literally could just walk into that office anytime he chose. Unlike the rest of us, he just walked in. Now, why do you think that was? Because Ryan is Jim's son. And there's something about being the son of the CEO that you have some pretty unique access, yes? Yes, like not everybody has that. You see, I think what we need to understand about this idea of a holy and royal priesthood is that we don't have to go through God's executive assistant to have access to him. And there's not one of us that has any greater access than anybody else. That's important. 
It's important to understand that just because one of us may have more knowledge or more training, because one of us feels more called, that we somehow have greater access to God. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, Pastor, uh, would you say a couple extra prayers for me? Well, sure, I'll pray for you. They're like, well, I feel like, you know, you're just a little bit closer to God. God probably just listens to you a little bit more than he does me. And I'm always like, uh, no. Mm-mm. I do not have any greater access to God than you do. We're equal in this, right? Here's the, beauty, the beautiful thing of this. When you become a follower of Jesus, you become a member of a holy priesthood. In essence, you become like a priest. Some of you are like, whoa, that seems so odd to me. I can't even wrap my head around that. But that's the reality. And so my question for you is this. Are you taking advantage of the idea that you have direct access to the CEO, that you have direct access to God, that you don't have to go through an executive assistant? When you need to talk about something, you don't have to wait for an appointment, right? When you need God and it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you don't have to call and leave a voicemail and say, hey, when you get around to it, can you make some time for me? When, when, when you're in a place and you just don't know what to do, you don't have to wait. You literally can just go directly to God and say, God, I, I need you right now for this or this or this, whatever it might be. When you're in a really hard financial situation, you don't have to wait to schedule an appointment. When your relationship is difficult or in trouble, you don't have to wait to schedule an appointment. When you face a difficult illness, you don't have to wait to schedule an appointment. Because you are a member of a royal and holy priesthood when you acknowledge and dedicate your life to the person of Jesus Christ. The third thing that we find about the church in this this passage in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is that the church is also a community. Now, we haven't read that yet. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. In verse 9, it says in part of that passage, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. These are some of the terms that Peter uses as he's talking about the church. All of these terms are actually throwback references to the Old Testament, all of them, okay? They refer originally to the nation of Israel, but Peter is using them to describe this church that is forming in the New Testament. Peter is, in many circles, called the father of the modern-day church, the New Testament church. Peter is the father of the church, And so Peter is trying to communicate an idea as he calls us a chosen people, as he calls us royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. There's something about these words that they all have in common, and that is they're all plural terms, right? These are all plural terms. They don't refer to just one person. They refer to multiple people. They refer to elements of community, like the other metaphors that we've already talked about. When we talk about the bride of Christ, the bride is one person, but a marriage involves how many? Two people, right? How many of you would consider your marriage to be a sort of a community, right? Your marriage almost has to be a community. If it's not, you've got some problems. You may not realize it, okay? But chances are you've got some issues there. The body of Christ, 
multiple members all brought together in one. It's like a community. I know some of you are like, what are you saying? I'm saying your fingers and your toes and your nose and your ears, all those things are like a community that are you, right? Multiple things that form one. It's like a community. When we think about a chosen people, a community, royal priests, plural, a community, a holy nation, multiple people, many people coming together as one, all being God's possession. See, this is important because you need to understand that as a church, we are all equal in God's sight. This is hard for some of us, okay? But when we become this holy nation, this holy priesthood, this chosen people, this holy nation, here's what we need to understand. All the distinctions that divide us and make us so unique as humans disappear. We become just children of God. Now, that doesn't mean that our uniquenesses are not celebrated. But what it does mean is that I am no more special in this family, in this community than you are. You are no more special than the person who sits next to you. The walls of separation break down when we understand that we are a community in Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, the Bible refers to this when it says that we are no longer Jews or Gentiles. We're no longer slave or free or male or female. All those things that divide us and separate us and make us different are gone because the Bible says that we are how many? One in Christ. We are one in Christ. Now here's what I need you to hear this. Please, please hear this. We are one in Christ, not when we all agree. Okay? We are one in Christ, not because we all love the same way, not because we all like and appreciate the same things, not because we all vote the same way, not because we interpret the Bible the same way. Those are not the things that make us one. What is it, church, that makes us one? Christ. Yes? The person of Christ. When I devote myself to Christ and I say, not only do I believe in who Jesus was, but I want to follow his teachings. I want a relationship with God through Christ. When I seek that, that's what makes me one with all the other people who do that. Do you all follow me? That is so incredibly important because believe it or not, the person next to you may not think the same way you do. The person next to you may not believe the same things you do. The person next to you may vote differently than you do. The person next to you may pay less in taxes than you do. Right? There are all these things. The person in front of you or behind you may have radically different biblical views than you. And you may want to look at them and say, you are wrong and I am right And I don't care if you do that. What I do care about, though, is this. You need to understand that what makes us one in Christ is not our theology, but it's the fact that we are born again into the family of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Church, that is what makes us one. Here's another important thing that you need to understand. In verse 4 of this passage, 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says this, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. Now, I want you to understand something about that first line. 
You are coming to Christ. There's something interesting about that. If you were to go back and look at the original language, the original Greek, you would find that that term for coming is what we would call a present middle participle. It's in the present tense. Now, I want you to understand, I want you to think about that. If I say you are coming to something, what does that mean is happening? I know this is deep. You're like, I don't understand. If I ask you, are you coming? And you say, yes, I'm coming. Or you say, I'm coming now. That means you're in the process of coming somewhere, coming to something, yes? Does it say you have come? Does it say you did come or you will come? You are coming. In other words, I need you to think about this. When we initially come to Christ, it's because we need a Savior. Yes? We recognize our need for a Savior. But we don't just come to Christ and then stop. We come to Christ over and over and over and over again. Not necessarily because we need a Savior. We come to Christ initially because we need a Savior. We continue to come to Christ because we know that He is what makes us what? One. And are there not things about you that tempt you to not want to be one with the people around you? Yes. Oh, yeah. Are there not times when you get angry with the people who are sitting in the space with you? Are there times that you look at people and you read their Facebook status and you think, what kind of Christian would post that? Yeah, you, I know you all are so much more holy than the rest of us and you don't do that kind of stuff, but... Are there not times when you listen to what someone says and you think, how can you possibly call yourself a Jesus follower when you think that way? Listen, we continually come to Christ because we rely on Christ to fix who? Us. Not the person next to us or in front of us or behind us, but us. And we say, God, I'm leaving that person in your hands. I'm leaving their Facebook status in your hands. I'm leaving the politician who they're choosing to elect into your hands. I'm choosing their views on abortion and putting them in your hands. Their views on homosexuality, their views on transgenderism, their views on immigration, their views on all of these things. I'm putting them in your hands and leaving them with you. Because it's not when they agree with me that I'm one with them. It's because we worship Christ. We worship God. We are one through Christ. Yes. I know for some of you that's so incredibly hard. Yes. Oh. Some of you are like, no. Not hard for me at all. Lies. I, listen. I know I struggle with it just like the rest of you. There are times I listen to people and I'm thinking, what in the world is wrong? How, could, how can you possibly think that? And the reason I think that is because you don't think the way, that's right, I think. Now listen, i got to close because I'm going to go over a few minutes. But there's this one important thing that I need to talk about today. Peter, the same person who's written these words about living stones, has a really well-known, famous conversation with Jesus in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Jesus and his disciples are, are in this area of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? Okay? Peter actually says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. 
right? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Now, what you need to understand that makes this passage so important, right? Jesus says, Peter, this is true. This has not been revealed to you by your own self. This has been revealed to you by God. And he makes the statement, and he calls Peter, he says, he calls him a rock. He changes his name, and he, he calls him a rock, essentially, Kephas. And he says, this is true, and it's upon this rock, the truth of this statement, that I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not stand up against it. Now, what's really cool about this passage is if you know anything about Caesarea Philippi, then you know something that makes these words even more powerful than they appear on the page. Because Caesarea Philippi is really kind of a, uh, an immoral place, right? It's very immoral. In fact, the really cool thing about it is it's like on a huge rock. There's a mountain that has a sheer face that's over 100 feet tall, okay? There happens to be within this gigantic rock a, a massive cave, and it looks like a mouth that goes straight into hell. That's actually what the people at the time thought. They thought that this was the gate to the underworld, okay, at this place called Caesarea Philippi. The Greek god Pan was worshipped in this place. There were actually um, temples built to honor Pan, who was like a goat god, okay? Believe it or not, it's kind of sick people would actually engage in sexual activities with, with statues that were created to look like Pan, this, this God. And so Jesus stands in this place, right? And he's standing probably at the mouth, near the mouth of this cave, at the, at the sheer mountain wall, 100 feet straight up. And he says, it's upon this rock that I will build my church. For centuries, we've debated what Jesus meant when he said that. It could be that he was talking about Peter himself. Peter had become the father of the church, the, the Catholic church especially, right? The Catholic church was, was built upon this concept that Peter was the rock upon which the church would be built. Those non-Catholic people would say probably, no, 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 no. It was the truth of Peter's statement that Jesus was referring to when he said, upon this rock I will build my church. But it could also be that he was literally referring to the rock upon which he stood. When he said, this is the place I will build my church. In other words, these people who you look upon and you see with such disgust, who you disagree so adamantly with, my church is open to them as well. Now some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? What I mean is, Jesus may very well have been trying to say that it is upon this rock Places like this where my church will flourish. My own people have rejected me. Right? I come not only for my own people, but for these people as well. This is where I'm going to build my church. So I need you to understand, there is something to be said. There is something to be said for the idea that we are a community not because we agree on everything. Not even because we agree on most things. But because we agree on one thing, and when we agree on Jesus Christ, that is what makes us one. That is, I cannot emphasize to you enough how important this is. I cannot emphasize to you enough how much stronger the reach and how much further the reach of the church would be if we could get our heads wrapped around that idea. If we could stop 
drawing dividing lines amongst ourselves because of the things that we see differently. And if rather we could come together as a family of believers who say, I agree with you on who Jesus is and that's what makes me one with you. All the other stuff, not that it doesn't matter, but that it doesn't matter enough to divide me and separate me from you. Now, I know some of you are looking at me right now and thinking, dude, you're insane, right? You're crazy. There's no way that that can possibly be what this means. There's no way that you can actually think that I'm going to be able to do that. And I'm going to say to you, I believe that you can do that. If you continually come to Christ, if you continually keep coming to Jesus and saying, ha, I don't know how to make sense of what this person thinks or feels or believes, but I don't have to. Did you all hear that? Let me say it again. I don't have to. Who's responsible for changing the hearts of men? God. God changes the hearts of men, not you and not me. So go ahead, church, hear me. Get your bullhorn out. Go down to the corner and hold up your sign. Yell and scream, tell people all the things they're doing wrong, right? Go ahead, focus on all the things that divide you. And see where you get. See what kind of success you have in changing the hearts of men or women. Men being a universal term referring to humans. See what kind of success you have. And then think about the power that the church could have in culture. If we would focus on being one in Christ. And if someone says to you, I'm a Jesus follower. I've devoted my life to Christ. He is working in my life. And you look at them and you say, "Mm mm-mm. If he was working in your life, you wouldn't be doing this. And you wouldn't be doing that. And you wouldn't think this. And you wouldn't think that. Let that go. Let it go. We're called to be living stones, church. Living stones that are stacked on the cornerstone, which is the person of Jesus Christ. That's our job. That's our role. We let God decorate the temple. We don't worry about all that stuff. What we worry about is that we are one in Christ, and because we're one in Christ, we are one in Christ. All of us together. My hope is that I've not offended anyone today. My hope is that I have not, um, you know, said something that has made you feel like, Brian, you seem kind of angry. I'm not, I'm not angry, but I'm passionate. I have a passion in my heart about the believers, the collective of believers, focusing more on the person of Christ than we do on all the problems that we see in the people around us. That's what I'm passionate about. My hope is that passion has been transferred to you, that the Spirit of God has spoken to you today. I'm going to ask you to pray with me now, Heavenly Father. Lord, my prayer today is that as we have discussed what the church is over the course of these past three weeks, that we recognize, God, the potential that you have placed within your church. God, that we recognize the potential, the power that the church could wield if we could focus more on our oneness in you and less on the things that divide and separate us, if we could get out of the way, if we could see ourselves as the mere mortals that we are, imperfect, fallible, broken people, that it is you, Jesus Christ, 
makes us right with God. Not our opinions, our beliefs, our ideologies, or our theologies. Lord, today my prayer is that if there is anybody here who feels divided, who feels set apart, who feels separated, who feels that they're not one, Lord, that you would help us as a church to recognize, love on them, be the kind of people you would have us to be, be one with you. Love you, we praise you. We ask all of this in your name today. Amen.